abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. A couple of years ago, I've decided to treat myself to a long vacation in the Lake District in England. I rented a car. The company, much to my delight, upgraded my reservation and I received a spanking new car from a manufacturer I do very much like. I was very pleased. It had all the trimmings a new car has and what especially pleased me was the high-quality, high-fidelity sound system. Mahler's first symphony never sounded better on the road. It was very stable on the road, good mileage per gallon. I felt safe. However, there was something that bothered me. My immediate surrounding, the driver's seat, the steering wheel, and the position of the mirrors were a bit challenging. But I nearly lost it when it came to the cup holder. I will just say that I never thought I could get into a duel for life with an inanimate object. See, the problem was the car was great. Driving it wasn't. A designer, in my opinion, is someone who's focused on solving problems, not making things prettier, just making them better. It means that design as a discipline has an obligation to people to making their lives better. And we solve the problems or we try to make life better by design in different arenas. So it can be industrial design, it can be interior design, it can be UX UI design, it can be architecture or anything else. But the basis of this profession is basically making life better. This is Ayelet Lazarovich, a product designer and a user experience specialist. Today's episode is all about a hidden in plain sight topic, how the design of things, be it an object, a physical area, a process, or even a digital application can impact our use of water. It all falls under the umbrella of sustainable design. Israel is in a semi-arid region, on the edge of the desert. Water is scarce. The winter of 2018-19 introduced immense amounts of rain, in some places reaching far beyond the annual precipitation average, replenishing dwindling water sources after five years of drought. And yet, there's no room for complacency. Being a natural resource, water should be treated in natural ways, says the architect, Dr. Noam Osterlitz. For me, architect is an integrator, first and foremost. Okay? It's the head of the builders. Architect responsible for taking all the technologies, all the features, all the design, and should be integrating the systems to work together for the benefit of the not for the building itself, but, the, but for the people who is going to use the building itself. Architect is, is not the, the engineer, is not the user, is not the water system guy. He's the one who's taking care of all of it to become one operating system. 
my agenda is as an architect is to work with the flow of land and the flow of water and wind and sun. These are the presents that we get when we come to a space, to a place that we're going to redesign or change. We're going to change a place, but we have to see it as a complex of presents. So we have to embrace the presents to use them as much as we can and do the best that we can to avoid negative. I'm not li- I don't like to call it so much negative because the same thing like the sun can be a very good thing in a day like that. If we had some sun today, it's very cold. <laughs> but it can be also uh, an, uh, something which we would like to prevent if it's a summer day. So mm-hmm. you have to work with the flow. Dr. Osterlitz, a researcher and lecturer at Tel Aviv University's Azrieli School of Architecture and Porter School of Environmental Studies, made his own home into a live-in demonstration house. He designed it in a way that incorporates the mechanics of water sustainability. <laughs> Live effects. I visited him okay. on a very cold and wet February morning for a private tour of the house. So, we're in your... That, that's the front garden. Yeah. So where are we? So, okay, this is uh, my house. Was, uh, actually, uh, I've been living here since, I, since I've been born. This was my grandmother's house. Uh, so I know this territory very, very well. Uh, I grew up here. I was uh, married under this uh, carob tree that you're going to see there. My, my kids played here, and I'm attached to this uh, land. The recording was challenging. Truth be told, I was freezing. However, I decided that I'll hang in in there to bring the authentic voices from his plot. It was raining, it was cold, it was quite miserable. Thank God I could use the wind as an excuse. And so we sat down for an interview in his office at the foot of the plot and continued the tour in a virtual manner. So when you came to design this house, mm-hmm. what so, did you have in mind? Okay, so I lived here for about 12 years before I designed the house. Therefore, I knew this lot very, very well. I knew the directions. I knew the way water are pouring on the surface. I knew the sun, where it comes up, when it goes down, enabling me to first of all look at the... Things that are my presence, the sun on the shade, the rain which goes down on the surface, and then how can I use this rainwater and keep it for myself in, in a way. And of course, the topography, which enables everything. So, what's so special about his house? Well, there are two main features that work seamlessly together. A dual indoor sewage system that corresponds with both municipal wastewater systems and the house's natural surrounding. We have a lot of water in the house. We consume 500 liters every day. This is a normal consumption of a four-person family. The question is, what are you doing with those water that you use? It's considered as wastewater, but not all of it is waste. Water from the kitchen sometimes have uh, oils, so you don't use it. Also the water from the toilets, we don't recycle on site, we send it back to the city sewage system and then it gets all the way to 
sewage treatment factory, about third of the amount of the water can be reused for water gardening. So we have a kind of a special system which makes sure that the water are purified. Showers and wash basins and uh, some of the water of washing machines goes to that system. It purifies. After 24 hours in the system, the water are almost as the quality of drinking water. It's very safe to use that for watering. This system was researched by professors in Ben-Gurion University, and it works very, very nicely. So, how was it built? For designing this system, first of all, you have to separate the sewage system in the showers or in the house to what goes to the city system and what stays in. Water that stays on territory goes to some kind of a holding tank, and from there it goes to a system that cycles the water with pumps on bacteria bed. The system is what we call a living machine. There is some plants and bacteria which absorb all the things that you don't want to have in the water, and also more oxygen goes into the water and works very well to eliminate stuff that usually we see as wastewater. It's very safe to use that for watering the garden. The plants are very happy with that water. Now, we go with the flow of the water from the street level, mm-hmm. and we got to the end of your plot, mm-hmm. and we're sitting now at the foot of your plot yeah. in your office. Yeah. Now, this wall over here that I'm pointing at yeah. actually holds all of the garden behind yeah. it, right? Yeah, some of it, yes. Okay. It holds actually a small portion of the, of the ground, and near the, the office, we have terraces. The water are kind of pouring from one terrace to another, and by that... They're getting a slow flow of the water. And in order that water to percolate into the ground, they have to flow slowly. Fast water cannot percolate. So we slow the water. If there is kind of an overflow, they go to the next terrace and to the next terrace. And by that, actually, we take care that almost no water are going out to the municipality area. And by that, actually, we're doing a service for the municipality because we prevent floods. As you notice, there is a green roof on the office itself. It's a very lightweight green roof. There's a lot of vegetation up there. How come it's not falling on us? (laughs) Well, it's a lightweight. It's a very special green roof, combination of textile and the special soils which can be very lightweight and percolate a lot of water into the system itself. You have a slope here that takes the water very slowly, and the vegetation and the soil on the roof itself slow even better the water. So when there is a storm and a lot of water coming from the sky, they're not pouring straight to the ground, but they release slowly from the roof itself, and we call it storm water management. So this will create less uh, stress on the city systems. All the house is surrounded by moving water systems. And I believe this comes to almost a spiritual level. I believe that moving water are very, very important. This is the time to confess that I see water not as a resource, but as kind of a quality in life or the life itself. Every time you go into a place where there are water moving, you relax. You relax because you see this is a place with life. Our life are dependent on water and when you hear water and you see water moving and you see water ponds, you feel life. This is the, maybe the main issue of having water in, in around the house. Now, I hear what you say. Most of us live in cities, in apartment buildings, no backyard or terraces. 
Thanks for sharing with us this interesting story, but it has no relevance to us. Worry not. I asked him exactly that. As a city dweller, if you're not designing your house, you go into a house that was designed by professionals who think 20th century. They do not think 21st century. As a consumer of houses, you, you may start to demand this kind of houses that makes a better way of taking care of water, for example. Some of the standards, the advanced standards in Israel, give priority to houses that can take water from the air-conditioned systems and reuse it as watering the garden. In terms of a very small apartment, you could, of course, use the water-saving systems or water-saving devices. You could have inside vegetation system. Even small apartments can have hydroponic systems where you can grow lettuce or cabbage or whatever. So you would have some vegetation and water flowing in your apartment. Water flowing would give some kind of uh, a new quality to your apartment. And if I want to go, you know, almost cut and paste what's going on here in your backyard yeah. and to create two different wastewater systems, well, that, that won't be cheap. Or is it achievable on, on a budget? Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of an achievable on a budget if you are a contractor and you are now building a new apartment building. You can do that. It's not so expensive. It's not, you know, science fiction and rockets going to the moon. <laughs> Let's face it. It's a few thousand shekels for each apartment and you would have that. Most of the systems that we have today, they wouldn't be designed the same way my system is here. It could be more mechanical systems and so on, but it's totally achievable. It has been done before in many places. There's huge buildings with water treatment systems. Uh, you could use it if you don't have a big garden. You could use it for flushing the toilet. And also in every apartment building that we have, there is some kind of a garden outside. And there are some roofs and some terraces and so on. So you could use that for watering vegetation. So we saw how sustainable design works on a single house level and what can be done at home. But... In the same way that no man is an island, the majority of us live in some sort of a village, a town, or a city. Chris Dermody is Chief Information Officer at Denver Water, the water utility company of Denver and its suburbs in the state of Colorado, USA. He was a guest of the Israel-Colorado Innovation Fund, and I had the chance to meet him in Tel Aviv during the tour they had in Israel, meeting Israeli water sector specialists and learning about innovative water technologies. The annual rainfall in Denver, the mile-high city, is at least twice as much as the annual rainfall in Israel's wettest place. And yet, Dermody says... Water supply is a challenge. Why is that? Mainly because the majority of our water supply is surface water, as opposed to groundwater. Mm-hmm. And often, given our, our um, climate and the changing and shifting of climate over the, over the course of some time, we're finding that our supply is less and less dependable. So our challenge is, obviously, how do we maintain surety of supply? The answer is usually collect and retain as much as we can. That requires more storage reservoirs, um, and that's a challenge, particularly in the West. We simply can't just go build more. Why not? We're very interested in protecting and, and securing our environment. Mm-hmm. You know, Colorado is a beautiful state, and so we want to be very thoughtful and work with others, and that's kind of the key. We ultimately want to achieve what we need, but we want to do it in a far more collaborative way. Meaning? You know, 
working closely with all of the stakeholders that are involved, from political officials to conservationists to environmentalists. We want to make sure we work in collaboration and do the things that will help us achieve our goals and help our, our partners and stakeholders achieve theirs. It's But all about balance. Isn't there a personal responsibility of people, oh, of users of the system? Oh yes, absolutely. You're spot on there. So let's call that the conservation ethos of our customers. And that is something that has evolved tremendously over the past 20 years. In, in what way? Awareness, um, changing the hearts and minds and souls of, of people uh, to understand and embrace conservation, being careful and cautious with what they use and how they use it. In fact, over the past approximately 15 years, we have reduced per capita demand by almost 20%. That's quite, nice. Quite significant. Mm -hmm. And we're not done yet. It we, just, you know, an asterisk, the U.S. is still the highest per capita consumer in the world. Understand. <laughs> it's all relative, right? <laughs> exactly right. So 20% is, it's not a dent. It's, it's impressive. Absolutely. Yeah. And as I was saying, we're not done yet. Mm -hmm. You know, we continue to, to work on, focus on education and technology to help our customers be more effective in the way they use water. So if you were a Colorado resident, a Denver resident, um, and you had a half of an acre of Kentucky bluegrass, you might think about changing that. That's great if you live in Connecticut, but if you're in Colorado, maybe not the ideal landscape. So what, to, so to tarnish my backyard? Not tarnish, enrich, Xeriscape. So Xeriscape is a methodology, a way, a practice maybe even a lifestyle, somebody might say, of using drought-tolerant plants in your landscape and minimizing those plants and vegetation that require high volumes of water. And there are some beautiful landscapes that are highly xeriscape implemented, very efficient, where they use a fraction of what they would traditionally use if it was all Kentucky bluegrass. What else can I do within my house? Ah, there is so much that can be done within the house. Um, if you have an older home with maybe original toilets that, that use gallons and gallons of water on a per flush basis, change them out. Change them to the low flow toilets. If you have um, other faucets, including shower heads that don't have filters, change them out. It's relatively inexpensive to do that. There's so many efficient things you can do in your own home. Don't put that dishwasher on with a bowl and a, and a fork in, the, in it and, and fire it up. Don't do that. Wait. Don't do a load of laundry with a t-shirt and a pair of shorts. Let it wait. Um, and if, if you're a guy like me, put it all in in one load. Now, of course, my family doesn't appreciate that because the reds and the whites tend to come out all pink. Pink. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a point where you have to use some good judgment. And concise, precise water use is all about good judgment. When you walk through the backyard at Dr. Ostelitz's house, you get to see zero scaping in action. A very small patch of green, and the rest, some quirky-looking shavings of something, not quite crackling under your feet, and yet seems like wood chips. I wasn't that far off. Mulch, he said. Mulch. Mulch is a kind of recycled wood, uh, grounded. In this case, we are using 
recycled uh, building woods. Grass needs a lot of water in Rodin. We do have a small lawn. It's about less than 20 square meters of lawn just for fun. And we spend there a lot of time in the summer or in sunny days of the winter. It's enough for us. We don't need to have a big lawn. We are not living in England, right? We're living in Israel. Eight months are very dry and hot. Everything that they do, they aspire to have every design feature to serve as at least three different uses. Which are? For example, in this case, it's preventing mud, keep the water in the ground, prevents evaporation, and also it allows bacteria to work better on the wood chips itself and in the ground itself, so you create kind of a better compostation processes in the garden. The guests in this episode are professionals with an impressive track record who've been perfecting their craft for many years. However, it is not just the insights rooted in the traditions of their trade that directs their actions. At the end of the day, inside every expert lies an individual with his or her very own beliefs, wider knowledge and personal experiences. In Dr. Ostelitz's case, From a very young age, he was an avid traveler and hiker, and even became an adventurous outdoors travel guide. I've been walking in nature, walking and, and learning nature, and only now I, I realize how special and how important that was for me as an architect. Reading the topography, looking at the weather is something which is very natural for someone who walks on mountains and deserts and Himalaya and places like that. You have to do that. Otherwise, you, of course, you wouldn't survive. You have to be connected to nature mm-hmm. for your survival. And I took that with me when I came to architecture. It took me many years to integrate that into my architecture and to make it one of my core agendas. Ayelet Lazarevich. I personally come from industrial design and then I moved into user experience design And I can talk a little bit more about technology, but if I look at the industrial design aspect uh, beforehand, I studied quite a few years ago, and I remember that we had uh, an option to choose a course about sustainability. And I must admit that I did not even understand how sustainability impacts design. And I thought, okay, they offer this course. Why not? I'll go and I'll check it out. And suddenly a whole new world of criteria to consider when I designed opened up. I realized that not only do I need to design for people and not only do I need to design thinking about manufacturing, I need to design for the whole life cycle of a product and I need to start thinking about the whole world, not just the people who are using the product. I think that it's extremely important to include this type of courses into any school and any discipline. I think it be is... Be it law, mathematics... Anything, it... marketing, medicine, everything. And I think it's marvelous. I know that as a designer, it's made me think differently about the impact I have when I design something. Water is a resource at the end of the day. It's a priceless resource. So if we try to think about how to preserve this resource and how to use it wisely, 
we need to think about a whole life cycle of a product. So thinking about the way it's being produced and the resources and thinking about how you transport it, how you compile all the different elements together, how you sell it, how people use it, how people throw it away and what happens to it. So it's a whole life cycle of a product and water is essentially a part of that life cycle. The way in which you described it was I suddenly heard the water being the product, how you take it, how you manufacture it, and then how you dispose of it. Water has a life cycle of its own. Yeah, that's right. But it's also a part of every other life cycle because it's such a huge part of life. I think people talk a lot about how you use water to manufacture products. So that part of the product's life cycle is talked about. It's starting to be considered more and more. Some companies take more care of it, like Nestle, as you had uh, in previous episode of Waterline. And some companies are starting to have more awareness of this uh, resource. However, there's another part of this life cycle that's very important for designers to think about. And that is the part in which users use the product. So it's out of our hands in some ways because people can use products however they see fit. But some products lend themselves more towards using more water or less water. Yeah, but if I'm talking about my phone, once you use the water to manufacture the phone, I'm not using water anymore in it. That's right. But as a designer, I think it's very important to think of all the aspects around your product. So when your product is being used, if it's a cell phone, yeah, you don't use much water <laughs> when you use a cell phone. But let's take an example of uh, bottles for babies, okay? Mm-hmm. So basically, of course, you have to wash bottles or any toy for very little babies is recommended to be washed or cleaned. And when you design a bottle for a baby, you rinse it and you clean it after every use, hopefully, <laughs> okay? Okay. I can talk as a mom in this case, as a designer mom <laughs> who had this experience to have a bottle that is compiled of five different parts. And every time you need to wash it, you essentially need to wash five different parts of the bottle. And when you do that, you waste quite a bit of water. Not just that you waste more water, it's actually a hassle. And as a mom, you don't have much time, let's say it like that. And if you have a baby on your arms while you try to do it, it's quite difficult. So it's a product that demands my time as a resource, and it demands water as a resource when I want to use it. So what would be the solution? Essentially, when my second baby was born, I realized I don't want to waste this time. And if I was more aware of water as a resource... I would understand that it's also a bad idea to waste so much water on washing it. And so I changed a brand and I bought new bottles for the new baby that were all from a different brand. And what led me to choose that brand was how many parts were in the bottle and there were only three. So if a designer thinks about 
time as a resource. And if a designer thinks about water as a resource, the design itself, the product itself, would be different. As designers, the more we think about the ramifications of the use of our products, I think we can create better products. We can design them to be used in a better way, to save more resources. And in this way, we better people's lives. You know what I find interesting now is the fact that you said that as a designer, you do pay attention to that. But as a mom, it took you a full first baby cycle to realize that you need to choose a better option or a better designed bottle for your second child. Well, I think it has to do with the fact that once a baby gets used to using a certain product, it's hard to switch it to a different one. And I had to kind of... You know, suck it up and <laughs> and kind of be brave and and wean her faster from using bottles, uh, yeah, probably <laughs> um but the it, it shows that the in the first instance I had the chance to switch to a different brand, I did that. Mm-hmm. I think that is an Israeli, you are aware of water all the time. Some of us are a bit more aware of it, some of us a bit less. But it's always in the back of your mind, and you won't leave the faucet open, and you, you will think about it. But as a designer, I, until I had that course, I didn't even realize that I have such a huge impact on what's going to happen. During my career, I transitioned from physical products into designing digital products, meaning websites, applications, complex systems. And the mindset remained designing a product. The mindset remained thinking about all the implications. And suddenly, the idea of sustainability takes a different form. If you think about a product that you throw away and its impact on the environment, it's very evident. When you think about digital products, who cares, basically? It's out there. It's out there in the cloud, Okay, mm-hmm. it's out there in the world, and it seems like it has no physical implications. However, first of all, you need to remember that there are servers <laughs> in this cloud that are very physical and take a lot of space and take electricity and water. This is a part of it, but also the idea of thinking about water as a resource came into my work in a different form. So maybe the design itself, the, the process of designing and manufacturing the digital product did not need water. However, we have a different impact. Digital products impact users' behavior in many ways. They have a huge power over our behavior. We've become dependent on On technology we've become dependent on certain applications on certain systems that we use at work for instance digital products became somewhat of guidelines to how we behave I'll give you an example navigation apps we are used to drive in the direction that they tell us to drive we will do what they tell us because we trust them. And if they tell us to take a different route, we'll take it because we trust them. 
because we've become dependent on them. We've become dependent on knowing exactly when we're going to arrive. We've become dependent on knowing where to go, even though we've never been in this place before. Most companies today use digital products to run their business. They use these systems to see how much money they spend, how much money they've earned. They have CRMs, which are customer relation management systems or ERPs or any kind of initials that will give them an overview about their business. At the end of the day, the CEO of that company sits down with a dashboard with an overview of his whole company and he makes decisions that impact the whole company, all the customers, according to the dashboard he sees, according to the data he's exposed to. How many companies in this dashboard have water as a resource to consider? That included water as something to have in the back of their minds when they make decisions regarding the future of the company. The perfect mix of control and awareness. It is all about information technology, says Chris Dermody. My work personally, as it relates to information technology, is really related to information. It's not the technology part of it, it's the information part of it. You're so a numbers person. A data person, an information person. Yes, n- numbers are, are one form of that information, but providing information that's meaningful and helpful in decision-making is ultimately what our objective is from an IT perspective. So providing, you mean not only for Denver Water as a company, but to the users? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So the more insight we can share with our customers as to their usage patterns and their, their consumption, the better. There's nothing better than information to help you make smarter decisions. And do you see it happening? Oh, absolutely. People change their behavior absolutely. just by you providing numbers? No question. So when a customer looks at their bill and says, hmm, I used 22,000 gallons of water this July. What did I use last July? Hmm, use 18,000. Why did it go up? Did the weather change? Th- that information is available to them as well. So it gives them context. And we're trying to do this in a more and more real-time fashion so that people are in tune with what, what they're doing, their consumption, and their behaviors. People do change their behaviors? Absolutely. Remember I mentioned our conservation program achieving a 20% reduction in per capita demand over a period of time? That's all about education. And that education is enforced by data, by information. And information is a key component in the world of sustainable design. Truth be told, I thought it had to do only with minimizing the impact on the environment by means of consuming more wisely. The how part of it never really crossed my mind. The building itself can include monitoring systems, sensors, devices that we already have and we know from our personal life, from our telephone. If we include that into the walls, into the windows, and we can design for that quality, we can make the building very, very intelligent. Listening to what you say, this is as far as you can get away from nature. In a way, it seems like Because that. it sounds so unnatural. Yes, but if you think, first of all, Today that we have, for example, a smartwatch that measures our blood pressure and our heartbeats and so on, we have the data. We can use that data 
to connect with the building and allow for better air, fresh air flow into the building, better natural light going into the building in a good balance with artificial light. And this actually is connecting us to nature because we can add or decrease the amount of natural resources we use or bring into the office or the classroom and so on. Sometimes when I, I talk about these things, people think that I'm delusional. My first reaction is come and see, because I try to demonstrate here that it can be done on a very, very normal house with normal budget, someone who works 24-6 and lives normal life. We need to start somewhere, right? If you just say it's impossible, that would be stay impossible. If everyone, just every architect and every designer and every project manager would just take one mission at a time, one small issue, like, for example, taking care of rainwater in that project or taking care of energy in the other project, creating a green wall on the third project, that would start a movement and people would start rethink of the way they live because they would see examples of how it can be done differently. 20th century is talking about form follows function. Yeah. That's kind of the basic notion of yeah. design, architecture yeah. and stuff like that. Mm. Where's the story of water in it? Because the way in which you described all of it, mm-hmm. it's not really form follows function. It's form follows flow. Yeah, yeah. The question is, what is the function? The function for me is not taking water from here to there. This is engineering, taking water from here to there. Architecture and form follows function. The function there is creating healthy spaces for healthy living. And this is the prime goal of architecture. And healthy is not only in terms of body, it's also in terms of mind and soul. You're not trying to avoid the 21st century. Absolutely not. You're not trying to run away from modernity. Modernity is uh, something that connects to 20th century. Meaning? Meaning modern time is the 20th century. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then we have modern, postmodern, and now we have the post-industrial revolution. The post-industrial revolution is the 21st century, and this is the time that we start using machines in a way that connects them to people's needs and not using machines as something that just creates objects. If I want to describe the 21st century revolution in which we are in the beginning of better interactions between people and machines, a better interaction between people and other people by those devices that we call cell phones. And it brings us to a whole new economy, economy of services, economy of interactions, economy of supplying the exact needs that I actually need for my existing and not consuming too much food, too much fuel, too much electricity. In the 20th century, the cost of energy, the cost of materials was very, very low. But now everything becomes so expensive that we cannot afford ourselves anymore to create so much waste and so much inefficient living ways. So we're going to focus on creating eco-effectiveness. Eco-effectiveness is the way our body connected to environment and how do we make it in the most efficient way. So... A good design, as Ayelet Lazarovich noted, has to take into consideration a product's life cycle into account in order to achieve the desired eco-effectiveness. Ayelet Lazarovich. You need to understand as a designer, I think we have to, 
understand this power and with great power comes great responsibility. It's not that I'm saying a designer is, you know, something that is so important or has such a crucial part in this ecosystem. I'm just saying that we have some sort of responsibility because it has an impact and that we need to choose what we do with this small space that we get to create an impact and which kind of impact we want it to be. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI media production. Follow the podcast on Facebook to get updates and give us your feedback. You can also follow me on Twitter at IdanC79.